The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Let me pray for us. Creator God, we're grateful to be uh, in this space to worship you with fellow travelers as we seek to um, hear your voice and to live by your word. And Lord, we would ask that um, you continue to illuminate our lives with your light and glory. Lord, that even in our dark times that we would be able to sense and to see you. That you would give us a sense of your activity among us. And God, we come here this morning experiencing so many different things and needing to hear different words, each of us from you. And so we ask, God, that you would speak to us in ways that we could see, know, and understand, and that we would leave our time together, having had an experience of you and a clearer vision for who you have called us to be um, in the place and times where we live. And toward that end, God, I pray that you pour through me the gift of teaching, that all things said here be from you and because of you and guiding us toward you as we partner with you to bring about your preferred future for all of creation. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so I recognize over time that I have shared bits and pieces of my life story with you all. And one of the things that everybody does, it may be like a human superpower, is that as we share our stories with one another, whether um, it's on fishing trips or we're playing golf or having a girls' night, whatever it is that you do with your friends, that human beings, like one of the things that we do really well is when we share our story, is we are fundamentally great editors. And we can edit our stories just in ways that um, always make us look good. And maybe, maybe sometimes when we're having a little bit darker times, that makes some other people look bad. But we have a way when we talk and share stories together um, that we wouldn't put it this way, but we always end up being the hero of the story or maybe like hero adjacent to the story. And so I know that over time when you hear someone tell their story over and over and over again, a wise person would say, well, I'm, I'm hearing just sort of the highlight reel. But I think we all know that if you just live long enough that no one's story is all highlights that there are some real dark and dirty parts that aren't always appropriate to share just with everybody, but we know that they're there. And so my whole life, like your whole life, has been just a continuation of joyous lament that at any given time there's something to be really joyful about, and at any given time there's something to lament. And we talk about our joys, but not as much our laments. And there was a time for me where most of my life, every day, just day to day, just felt like lament. And I don't know about your entire life story, but from the time I was a little boy, I was supposed to be a rock star. Like everything that I did from the time I was a kid just went well, whether it was playing sports or school. Everything that I touched turned to gold. And somewhere along that journey, I got the idea, like many of us have the idea, that life was just going to be one continuous move from glory to glory to ever-increasing glory. 
And so that continued even when I went to college. I left Atlanta, came out to Texas to go to college at Abilene Christian University, and I was majoring in Bible. And even everyone in my college, both the students and the professors, like they just knew that I was going to be great, that I was going to be a rock star. And so um, for two years when I was in college, I headed up this thing called spring break campaigns where each spring break we'd send out teams to do these week-long mission trips um, all over the United States. And the two years that I was in charge, we had more trips and more students go on trips than in the history um, of spring break campaigns. Some really um, unwell-known guy, some guy from obscurity named Max Lucado started those trips at my school years before, and I beat him. And when I was in college, I led this popular Bible study every Tuesday night for high school students. And I started another Bible study on Wednesday night for college students. And I thought I was the smartest person who had ever lived because it dawned on me that I could just teach the same thing on Wednesday night that I just taught on Tuesday night. And I was supposed to be great. One of my missions professors came and talked to a friend of mine, a friend named Jeff, and he says, you guys do realize, like, like you, are, you are spiritual giants on this campus. And so I graduated, and I went to work for a church in South Texas. And almost as soon as I got there, things started looking up. Like, that youth group started growing really fast. And we didn't even have all space and vehicles for all the kids. And it was just another piece of evidence that in my life, like everything just always got better. Everything just always succeeded. And so we were there for a couple of years until this church in Houston called and said, hey, we'd really like for you to come and work in our youth ministry here. And we didn't want to stay in South Texas any longer. It made a lot of sense for us to be in Houston. And we arrived at this church and things just kind of kept going on better and better and better. Like I was suddenly I was teaching other youth pastors about how to do youth ministry and things were happening really fast for me, almost too fast. And then we had an event. Our church went through what every church eventually goes through. As our senior pastor and his wife decided for a lot of family reasons that they needed to move, and so they left and went back to Nashville. And somewhere in the back of my head, I had always had this sense, this feeling you know, that, that preaching thing, I think I, I think I could do that one day. I think I might be good at that. And not only that, a lot of people from the time that I was in high school told me that you, you might be really good at that. And so this was an opportunity just to get some reps doing that. And one Tuesday night, some church leaders called me and they said, well, here's what's going on. Like, we're going to go through this process and find our new senior pastor, but what we'd really like to do is um, for you to keep all of your same responsibilities, but then preach three out of four weekends a month. And they were going to compensate me for it. And at the time, we had just built a house out in Katy, and Rochelle was pregnant with our oldest daughter, Malia, and it seemed like everything was lining up, and this was just the right thing at just the right time. And so I decided, yeah, I'll just do that. And almost again, from the beginning, things just got better. This, This church who had had this incredible reputation in past, but had been in decline for over a decade, like suddenly started to grow. And I knew that, I knew that it wasn't all because of me, 
we made some changes that really helped, but there was a part of me that thought, a lot of it's because of me. <laughs> and suddenly my, my phone started to ring. And it was other churches and Christian organizations and groups who wanted me to come and teach and preach and do all of those things. And part of me thought, well, that's nice, and I'd like to do that for the kingdom of God. And another part of me thought, it's about time. Well, as things continued to grow and progress there, like there are people in that church who said, you know, we, we're looking all over the world for our next senior pastor, but things are really good here now. And Sean's right here already. And, and they started whispering to me, do you, do you think you'd be interested in this job? We'd really like for you to be interested in this job. We think you'd be great at this job. And I was 28 and young enough to believe them. And so I put my name in the hat. And we went through the process just like everybody else. And it came down to the last two candidates. And one night, two of our church leaders came out to the house to talk to me and Rochelle. And they said, we've decided um, to go in a different direction. And I was devastated. For those of you who speak Enneagram, I am a three on the Enneagram. And if you know anything about that, you will know what feels like death to a three is failure and embarrassment, especially public failure. And it is not an exaggeration for me to tell you that in the denomination that I grew up in and having gone to the school I had gone to and because I had done some things in the denomination, that virtually every person in my life knew about this failure. And for most people, all you have to do is live long enough and most people will have will not get a job that they wanted to get. But that's not what it feels like to people like me. And, and even worse, like this was news. Like my mom would go to church and people would ask her. My brother and sister-in-law would go to church and people would ask them. It was everyone I knew. And there were certain quarters by certain people for I just became a joke. Like this was a really important denominational church. And who is Sean Palmer to think that he could get that job? 
He's not ready for that. And worse, I still had to work there. And there was a new person who was coming in who I didn't think was as good as I was. (laughs) And I still had to work there and deal with all of the weirdness and awkwardness of that. But we had just built this house. And we had just had our oldest daughter, and this was a kind of time in life where you just have big boy responsibilities, and you just can't take your ball and go home. You just got to suck it up and do something because you've got a family to take care of. And Rochelle was staying home, and I was the only one working, and so we just did what we had to do. And, and they were really gracious. They decided, you know what, we're going to pay for you to go back to school, and they did all of that. But those were really hard years. And I just felt like I was floundering. I'd drive every day from Katy down to the Galleria and hate every minute of it. And you all know Houston traffic. There are a lot of minutes of it. And I remember listening to this song over and over again from a guy named Colin Hay because it expressed exactly what I felt at the time. The name of the song was Waiting for My Real Life to Begin. But we pushed through, and I remember my mom asking me, she's like, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to wait for them to finish paying for my school, and then I'm leaving. But I didn't get the chance, because things were so misaligned that about four years later, I got another call from our church leaders and said, we'd love Uh, to come and visit you, talk with you about something in the office. Are you available tomorrow? And they came in, and they said, well, we've been talking, and we've decided um, that we either need to be um, your church or his church, and it can't be both, so you're fired. And that's the words they use, too. Like, it wasn't churchy words, like, we're going through a season of pruning. (laughs) Or we're going to enter into a transition. It's like, you were fired. And if you think not getting a job just four years ago felt like death, this was all of that death and another death on top of it. And as they were leaving, I remember saying to them, is there a way, um, is there a way that we can talk about this so that my children don't have to know that I was fired? And so we came up with that, how we were going to talk about that. But on the upside, I had seen and felt the walls closing in, and so I'd been talking with a congregation in Northern California outside of San Francisco about their senior pastor position, and that was kind of in the works, and so we moved almost directly, like there was no, there was n- no paychecks were ever missed. 
and we packed up and moved out to Northern California. And things went from Houston to Northern California, went from bad to worse. And I would like to tell you that things were bad from day one, but things were bad from before day one. And there was tension and conflict from the very beginning. Some with me and the staff, some with me and the leadership. Me and the church were almost always great, but it wasn't going to work out. And so after five years of that, we just decided, you know what, um, we can't do this anymore. And we had this opportunity to come back to Temple, Texas to work with this uh, little congregation that was trying to do a relaunch in Temple, Texas. It was close to my wife's mom. We had been far away from family, and she was a widow at that point, and we wanted to be close. And so we decided, let's just hop on in the car and get back to Texas where our friends are and our support is. And so Rochelle and the girls got on a plane in San Francisco and flew to Denver and hung out with her best friend from childhood for a week and her children there. And then they flew on to Austin and I got to drive the U-Haul. <laughs> but I got to drive the U-Haul halfway across the country with my spiritual director. And I just want you to know, if you ever have the opportunity in your life to make a cross-country trip with your spiritual director, don't. <laughs> because that is three days of talking about stuff that you don't want to talk about and answering questions that you don't want to answer. And somewhere in the middle of Arizona, as we were driving this U-Haul, Don's driving, I'm sitting in the passenger seat, and I tell him, you know, after what the last seven years have been like, only a foolish person wouldn't realize what the common denominator is. It's me. I said, Don, you know, if this doesn't work out, I think I'm just going to go sell insurance. And so we came back to Texas. And from that time, almost from the time that I told Don that, God's been really good to us in a lot of different ways. And so one of the things that I get to spend my time doing now is mentoring young preachers, lots of young pastors, some who want to preach, and they come to me for coaching and all of that. And we're in big groups, and I tell them about what life really is like inside of the pastorate. And I tell them the story of those seven years, and they ask me about that. I always tell them the same thing. Worst years of my life. Best thing that's ever happened to me. And it truly was. The worst years of my life. And the best thing that's ever happened to me. So I can see if you've been around for the past several weeks, you know that we are in the season of Lent. And what we've done is what Christians have done throughout the centuries, which is that we take this time, we bracket this time of year every year 
to go into the desert with Jesus. That, that Jesus, right after his baptism, enters into a time of testing and trial and affirming his identity in the desert. And Christians throughout time have decided that in solidarity, that the thing that we need to become the people that God intends for us to become is time in the desert. And everyone that you've ever met, that you've thought, oh, you know what, I'd really like to be like him, I'd really like to be like her, I would like to have their maturity, I would like to have their grace and their wisdom, every one of the people that you've ever met who are like that can tell you about their time in the desert. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was reminded of Genesis 22, when, when Jacob, who has been estranged from his family, on his way back to Canaan, to reconcile with his family, has this really odd experience. And this is the way that Genesis 22 tells that story. It says, later that same night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and he crossed the Jabbok River. He sent them all ahead across the stream along with everything he had, but Jacob stayed behind, left alone in his distress and doubt. In the twilight of his anguish, an unknown man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw he was not winning the battle with Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was thrown out of joint as he continued to wrestle with him. Let me go, the dawn is breaking. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What's your name? Jacob. You will no longer go by the name of Jacob. From now on, your name will be Israel because you have wrestled with God and humanity and you have prevailed. So Ecclesia, this is what I want us to see as we close out Lent this week, as we enter into Holy Week this week with Monday, Thursday and Good Friday and then Resurrection Sunday. And what the world won't tell you, what our culture won't tell you, is that the blessing, the blessing is on the other side of the wrestling. And there's nothing in our cultural impulse that will let you know that to become the woman, to become the man that God intended for you to be, requires the desert and requires wrestling. And we will spend a lot of energy in our lives trying to push back and reject the desert and the wrestling when that's the exact thing that we need. And so for some of us, these seasons of the year like Lent that come around, like we, we try to avoid them like a wreck on the freeway. But not knowing that it's only on the other side that we experience what God intends for us to experience. And the truth is, you do become a different person after the wrestling, but you might spend the rest of your life walking with a limp. But here's something that you already know. You probably don't trust anyone who doesn't walk with a limp. That that's where the beauty and the power is in the wrestling.
And so it's not odd. Given this story, as Jacob is going to reconcile with his family, that Jesus, right after his baptism, as he is set forth on his mission to restore and redeem the world, to reconcile his family, that Jesus goes into the desert as well. And this is how Matthew captures that story in Matthew 4. Matthew says, The Spirit then led Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And right there we begin to see what's so powerfully important about the desert. And one of the things I want you to see is that the desert is where God sends you. Jesus doesn't go into the desert because he's done something wrong. Jesus doesn't go into the desert because he's failed at something. It's not like Jesus was on the right path and took a wrong turn someplace and he just ended up in the desert. Jesus ends up in the desert because that's where God sent him. And your inclination, your temptation, is when you find yourself in dry and barren times, when you find yourself in the desert, your temptation is going to be to believe that that's a sign of God's absence. When for Jesus, it was a sign of God's presence, that that's exactly where God wanted him to be. And I don't know what it is for you. Maybe your desert right now is a difficulty with a family member, maybe a parent or a child. Maybe you're facing a difficult time in your marriage or with your children, perhaps with your finances or your job, your future, all of those things that mean so much to us. And I want to be careful with this because it's not always the case. But sometimes when you find yourself in the middle of a dark and desolate, desolate situation, that's exactly where God wants you to be. Because God wants you to do the wrestling. Before Jesus goes into the desert, at his baptism, the dove descends and we hear the voice of God saying, this is my son, listen to him. And that's such a powerful moment because it's God recognizing who Jesus is, but it's not until after the desert that Jesus recognizes who Jesus is. And some of us have lived false lives because we've never embraced the trial of knowing, discovering who we are. Often, the desert is where God sends you. But it doesn't stop there. The second thing the desert teaches you is the desert forces you to pay attention. So years ago, my friend Brian said something that stuck with me. He says, what you focus on determines what you miss. And it's counterintuitive, but it makes a lot of sense. Whatever you focus on, like you've only got so much focus to go around, and that determines the things that you miss. And for some of us, we have spent our lives focusing on our education or our family, our children. Maybe we spent our lives focusing on our job and our career. And we've arrived at a place where we've spent so much time focusing on all of these other things that we have failed to focus on ourselves. Worse, we've failed to focus on our souls. 
And no matter how many times I have to say it, what I want you, what I want the world to know is that you are a soul. Everything else in life is a have. You have a body, you have emotions, you have a family, you have a career, you have a house, you have a car, but you are a soul. There is one thing about you that is eternal and eternally beautiful, and that is your soul. And the desert allows us the opportunity to focus on our soul, to pay attention to all of the things in life that are going on, our inner world that has been going on that we have successfully avoided until now. And what you focus on determines what you miss. And some of us have missed our very selves. And maybe you're like me, that you grew up in a home or a church that told you that focusing on yourself was selfish, and that's not something that you should do. So I just want to dissuade you of that and clear that up for you. Because you, focusing on you, is not selfish. You expecting everybody else to focus on you is selfish. You are a soul. And what you focus on determines what you miss. And in the desert, you get to focus on you because there's nothing else to focus on. And in the desert, the desert forces you to let go. And I think change is a beautiful, important thing. And in spiritual circles, in Christian circles, religious circles, we talk a lot about change, and that's important. But change is only a stop on your way to transformation. And it's fine for us to use change as a kind of a shorthand, but what we're after is transformation. Because because change is often about adding things onto your life. And some of us need to do that. Some of us need to add on prayer life and a devotional life. Some of us need to add on some spiritual practices in our life. But transformation, the spiritual teachers throughout history would tell us that transformation is about letting go. Letting go of all of the things that we have added on and added on over the course of our lifetime. Because here's how it works for all of us, and we've all done it. We come into the world and we're as children and we begin to add on stuff. We add on personality and false self. We add on career. We add on our own self-perceptions. We add on our hopes and dreams. We just add and we add and we add and we add. And then we wake up one day, and maybe for some of us it's at 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 70 or 80, whatever it is, and we don't know who we are because we've added on so much. And there's this essential part of you that God created. For it to be unearthed, we have to let go to let go of all of the things that we thought were so important that life has truly tried to teach us are inconsequential, to letting go of power and control, letting go of domination, letting go of our fears. It's about letting go. Martin Laird 
talks about it this way in his book, A Sunlit Absence. He says, according to ancient theory of art, the practice of sculpting has less to do with fashioning a figure of one's choosing than with being able to see in the stone the figure wanting to be liberated. The sculptor imposes nothing, but only frees what is held captive in stone. So where I was raised to be a rock star, the truth is that you're a rock and that God is chipping away all of the extra that is not you to reveal who it was, who it is that you were created to be, that we may become what the Apostle Paul calls in Ephesians, God's workmanship, God's masterpiece. And that requires letting go. And so through this Lenten time, we have been guided by Henry Nouwen, who was a Catholic priest. And Nouwen said that our problem is that in our world and our culture, we believe three big lies. And those lies are, I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what others think of me. And here's the beauty of the desert, that in the desert you have nothing. And in the desert you can do nothing. And in the desert there is no one to think anything of you. And the power of the desert is that you and I are freed from the lies. So Ecclesia, it's Palm Sunday. And it's the time we celebrate Jesus' Jesus's entry into the holy city as people applaud and cheer. But we've read ahead and we know that we're not far away from people jeering. And that's the way life is. That's the way people are. And the only way that you and I will be able to hold the ups and downs of life, the only way that we will carry our identity the way that Jesus does, is to wrestle in the desert, to know that we have become and are becoming the women and men that God intended us to be, even if it means spending the rest of our lives walking with a limp. Let me pray for you. God, reveal to us who you intended for us to be, and Lord, though none of us would diagram it, we know that that won't always be sunshine and roses and parties and celebrations, but there will be a joyous lament that we will have times of great celebration and times of great lament, and sometimes those are the same time. And so would you give us clarity about what you are doing in our lives and who you are and who you're calling us to be? And we ask for this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, 
please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.